0: Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at how the 2019 election campaign is travelling, the sinking feeling of the politics of water and the mainstream media. How are they affecting the election campaign so far? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics.
1: I'm David Lewis, president of the Cayman Islands Chamber of Commerce.
0: We're into the third week of the 2019 election campaign and real votes have been already lodged in pre-polling booths all around the country. It's been an up and down campaign so far, we've had the revelations of a water buyback scandal, a range of policy announcements from one side of politics, but from the other side beer swilling, sheep shearing, lawn bowls and football. But the real question is, have people really started listening yet, or will they wait until the final week of the campaign to start focusing their attention on the election?
1: The Liberal Party is too obviously in the pockets of vested interests that aren't necessarily in the best interests of Australia. The last time this happened was about 1940. What was then the United Australia Party, no relation to the current United Australia Party, collapsed in 1943. It was nearly wiped out of office. In 1944, it restructured itself as the Liberal Party and then went on to great electoral success in 1949. I think most people have made up their mind. There's a poll saying 73% of people have already made up their mind. A lot of this election campaign is rather redundant.
0: It's been a very unusual campaign because there's been the Easter break, then there was the Anzac Day holiday, and it's also all wedged in between the school holidays. So it's almost like the first two weeks were just a warm-up lap. Both sides were clearing out their throats, testing out different messages, different ideas, and it's almost like the first two weeks didn't really matter that much because people weren't that focused.
1: I've had friends of mine who are Labor supporters be a bit worried about Labor's tactic of small target. Labor tends to do better with charismatic and popular figures. Bob Hawke, Paul Keating at least once, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard at least in retrospect. The government's campaign has been, frankly, disastrous. Probably the most entertaining and most disturbing interview of the last 10 years was Barnaby Joyce on Radio National. Half panicked, half paranoid, half bluster. So it's three halves, and I'm not retracting from that because it made no sense, so you may as well have three halves. Jumping around trying to defend the
0: indefensible. No, I wasn't so sure about how the campaign was travelling and initially I thought, well, the overall process for the Liberal National Party is a save the furniture strategy and that's speaking to their base so that they don't think about sending off their preference to One Nation or the United Australia Party or going over to the Labor sides. But just recently, over the past week, there has been a tightening of the polls as well. Now, polls can be read in so many different ways. Consistently, it's been 52 to 48% in the two-party preferred vote in the favour of Labor for a long, long time. There's been two polls over the past week. One was News Poll, which showed a tightening of 51 to 49%. And there was also an Essential Poll that was released recently as well, which had the same figures. For a long, long time, we've been saying that the Liberal National Party will be wiped out in this election campaign, but do you still think that might be the case?
1: I actually think that we might be looking at another term, Liberal National, to be quite honest. And I think it's going to happen through preferences. I think Labor is going to win the primary vote, but I think in those marginal seats where people will vote for independence, the preference flows will go to LNP. And I think that we might be in another term of minority government.
0: Well, in yesterday's debate, Scott Morrison did say that federal election campaigns and elections are usually quite close. And numerically speaking, he is quite right about that. An election result of, say, 53 to 47 percent, that sounds like it is numerically close, but that's actually a landslide in Australian politics. 52 to 48 on the two-party preferred vote can also be a landslide as well. But also, the last election was close to 50-50 in 2016. I'm thinking about the 1998 election where the Liberal National Coalition, they actually won with a two-party preferred vote of 48.5 and they managed to win the election by 10 seats or, or thereabouts. It's not necessarily all about the two-party preferred vote in the Australian political system. It's all about how many seats you win. But do you think it would be possible for the LNP to win the overall election with a vote of, say, 48.5% or 49%? There are all these marginal seats
1: in Sydney's West, in Melbourne's West, in the outer suburbs of Brisbane, some rural seats. There are strong independents running. I don't think there's a lot of strategic voting. There are exceptions. Apparently in the Wentworth by-election, the discussion on the line was how do we make sure Karen Phelps wins and a lot of discussion on preferences. But that won't happen in every seat. A lot of people, of course, don't know how the preference system works. It's actually a very fair system, but you have to know how, how it works to make sure it works properly. And people will donkey vote, one, two, three, four, five down the centre. People will say, I recognise that name, or I'm going in, I'm going to vote for the Liberal Party. I don't know who these other people are, but I recognise that person, so it's number two, and they vote in as their second preference, the student socialists. A lot of people don't think much beyond Their one vote
0: now you did mention the united australia party well they of course existed up until 1940 there is a new united australia party and that's the one that's set up by clive palmer there's been a preference deal that's been done between the liberals and the united australia party clive palmer's name is mud in queensland people might have short memories about this but not so short he does owe the australian taxpayer 70 million dollars That's one of his nickel companies. He also owes workers of that nickel mining company $7 million. My feeling is that this preference deal won't be such a big deal for the Liberals. I think it will turn out to be quite a mistake.
1: If ever you watch YouTube, probably three out of five ads are UAP ads. James MacDonald for UAP. It used to be Clive all the way, but someone has obviously thought that Clive might not be the best face. And so there's all kinds of people. There's a Chinese lady talking about how the UAP will stop racism, which I thought was a very uh, interesting strategy. Um, and I hope that it's a genuine one. There's other candidates jumping in. The point is is that he's thrown a lot of money into this. Will Australians be swayed? Hard to tell. He is announcing policies, a uh, high-speed rail, which everybody seems to want but nobody seems to want to commit to. That may swing in some parts of the country. Then again, they may say, yes, it's Clive Palmer. We can't trust him. He was bragging the other night on 7.30 report or the project where he was worth $4,000 million dollars.
0: Well, you would expect that someone that is worth $4,000 million should be able to find $7 million to pay their worker entitlements. Clive Palmer has been a bit of a one-man show, but I've noticed that during the campaign, Scott Morrison has also been a one-man show as well. He's almost like the Marlboro Man. The only thing that he hasn't done is ride horseback without a shirt on in Vladimir Putin style, but he's been sheep shearing. He's been doing a lot of different things like that. But he is pretty much by himself. He hasn't got much of a team behind him. Whereas Bill Shorten comes with the team. He's out there with Tanya Plibersek. He's out there with Chris Bowen. He's out there with Penny Wong. He's out there with a whole range of different people beside him. So that seems to be the difference between the campaign, the individual on one side and the team on the other side.
1: Penny Wong has been a high-profile candidate, bit of a head-kicker actually, Tanya Plibersek. It shows a confidence in his ministerial team or his potential ministerial team. Where's Josh Frydenberg? Where's Matthias Korman? Uh, Mitch Feifeld was uh, on Q&A last night and I don't think he'll be back on TV for a while if his performance was anything to go by.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the politics of water buybacks.
1: We all came out to Montreal on the lake to Neva shoreline to make records with a mobile. We didn't have much time. Frank Zappa and the mothers were at the best place around. But some
0: In 2017, Barnaby Joyce was the Minister for Water and authorised a $79 million purchase of water rights from two properties in Queensland. And the details of this deal have only come to light recently. The properties are owned by Eastern Australia Agriculture, and the Minister for Energy, Angus Taylor, was an establishing director of this company. Angus Taylor did resign as a director when he entered Parliament in 2013, but there's still a lot of questions that need to be answered here. The company is registered in the Cayman Islands, so we don't have any details at all about who owns the company. There were no tenders, so we don't know the background to the deal. The company made a $52 million profit on the transaction, and the deal is for flood water, which means the Commonwealth has access to water that, on average, only appears once every decade. Seems like there wasn't much of a good deal for the taxpayer on this situation. It's not a good
1: look. Pretty much if there's anything dodgy going on, Barnaby Joyce doesn't seem to be too far away from it. This water was valued at most $24 million. So how it gets sold for $79 million is something that has not been explained at all. Obviously, we can't say whether Angus Taylor benefited. Likely he didn't. But it's still not a good look at a, a company that he set up and was a director of that is based offshore, does very well.
0: Well, I guess the critical factor is that because it is registered in the Cayman Islands, this company, we just don't know. We haven't got any details about who owns the company. There's nothing actually illegal about setting up a, this sort of company, but it's just seems quite a dodgy deal. It's not the type of deal that most governments would do. Generally, tenders
1: have a very clear and open paper trail. This one has no paper, as far as we can tell. I think a lot of questions need to be asked. Barnaby Joyce has been an irrelevancy since his leadership and that his career is dead.
0: If there was any doubt that his career is dead, it's here. He did actually receive the water portfolio when Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister in 2015. Sorry, Sorry, he demanded the water portfolio as part of his purview as uh,
1: deputy prime minister.
0: The coalition agreement is between the leader of the national party and the leader of the liberal party when they're in government, but it's a secret agreement. So to add to that level of secrecy of the water buyback scheme, we've got no idea about why the deal between the Prime Minister and the leader of the National Party, we've got no idea what the contents are. We can guess what those contents are, but we've just got no idea. So you're right, he did actually demand the water portfolio, and I guess we're finding out the reason why now.
1: He's probably one of the most corrupt federal members of parliament we've ever had. Now, I should qualify that by saying there could be some very straightforward and honest explanation as to how it went this way. We haven't heard it and I'd like to hear what it is, if there is. The more he defends himself, the deeper he digs the hole.
0: Well, his defence of the whole buyback deal and whatever happened during the time that he was the Minister for Water was quite bizarre. You did refer to that interview between Patricia Cavallis from the ABC and Barnaby Joyce. Let's hear just a little bit of a snippet of that. In terms of the beneficiaries on the Cayman Islands, you said you didn't know, but you know now on, who they on. are. Who they're are the they? Same
1: beneficiaries the Queensland Labor government should have known about. Okay.
0: Do you know oh, who maybe, they are state now?
1: governments are just not up to the I'll job. I'll ask
0: again. Do you know who they are now? You, maybe the Queensland Labor government, who recommended this to us, the Queensland Labor government, Labor, 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 Labor government, who recommended this to us. Do you know you who the beneficiaries are, are now? Are there are any, any associates? I'm asking you. I'm asking you a question. That's been described as one of the most bizarre interviews ever between a radio journalist and a politician. I'd go one step further. It's just the most bizarre interview between anyone that I've ever heard on radio. There was no defence to Joyce's decisions when he was uh, Minister for Water. It just seemed like he was talking over the top. There wasn't any sense behind what he was saying. And it seems like Barnaby Joyce's brand of retail politics is going to end up in the bargain basement bin. Like, it just doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. So a lot of people in the media, they were quite amused by someone like Barnaby Joyce. Like, he comes across as the political joker within the system. He's part Joe Bielke-Peterson. He's part comedian. He's part something else. But Barnaby Joyce is not a clown. It seems like whenever there is a National Integrity Commission that is set up, hopefully sooner rather than later... He'll be one of the first people that's lining up there.
1: He's basically a small-town mayor with a federal reach and a federal budget. Favors, and all politicians do favours for each other and use those lines of influence to push policy. It's whether you do them for the greater good or whether you do them for personal gain. He's clearly done them for personal gain. He's clearly in the pocket of big mining and big farming. Michael McCormack had an interview that has been completely overshadowed by the Barnaby Joyce, Pat Carvelas one, in which he couldn't actually point out a recent policy of the National Party that favoured farmers over miners. With Barnaby, it looks like he's on track to win New England again. I don't know what they put in the water in New England although the independent Star is being mentored by Tony Windsor. So that could have an effect. And we might see Barnaby with either a much reduced margin or even being pushed out of office. I found that interview, I listened to the first 10 minutes of it just after it went up online, and it was quite odd. A lot of people thought he was drunk. I'm not quite sure. If I was a betting man, you'd probably put your money on it just because the odds are in your favour. But it was clearly a man who was panicked and a man who at least thought he might have something to hide. The notion that a minister would let negotiations of that size go at arm's length is astonishing.
0: Well, you do compare someone like Barnaby Joyce with someone else like Ian Sinclair. Ian Sinclair used to be the party leader of the Nationals and he actually held the seat of New England for 33 years. Now he had a fine sense of public service and being a politician in the public interest and the public good. But you look at someone like Barnaby Joyce and then Michael McCormack, who is the leader of the National Party today, and it just seems like they've fallen so far since those times of Ian Sinclair. McEwen, Tim Fisher, the National Party survived for so long, I think,
1: because it had substantial people running it who were basically honest who basically had the good of Australia at heart. Now, you didn't have to agree with them, and obviously what we think might have been completely different, but at heart, they wanted to advance Australia in the way they thought best. I can't see this from either
0: McCormack or Barnaby Joyce. So water will be a big issue in the regions of Queensland and New South Wales in this upcoming election, and there's independents in Farah, Mallee and Cowper that are set to take the seats. And possibly, as you mentioned, New England as well. Could these be the real surprises of the election? Like, there's a lot of focus on marginal seats. There's a lot of focus on what the Prime Minister is doing, what Bill Shorten is doing. But quite often, the surprises happen when no one's looking. The seat of Cowper is held by the Nationals. Mallee is held by the Nationals as well. And Farah is held by the Liberal Party. That's Susan Lay's seat. But they've got some pretty strong independence there. And my feeling is that these could be the big surprises of the election night.
1: Fishers and Farmers Party loom large as well. They turned the seat of Collaire from a 30% margin to the National Party into their own seat. And this was in New South Wales, a, a state that has bucked all the trends. Anything can happen. And I think that the National Party is a bit on the nose in some electorates at least. Rural people are looking at... Fish deaths, they're looking at a worsening drought made worse by poor water management. The town of Walgett has no water. They've got to truck water in. In 21st century Australia, that is appalling. It had flowing water since its inception up until very recently. The fish kill. And then there was another one that wasn't as widely broadcast. And the people who were upset about it weren't a urban city greenies. It was the farmers who knew that something was desperately wrong. It was people who aren't your traditional
0: perception of what environmentalists are. So the entire water buyback system, the in particular that $79 million transaction, that's been referred to the Auditor General, possibly in the hope that it blows over during the election campaign and then there'll be more focus on it after the election is over. The former Federal Police Commissioner, Mick Kilty, he suggested that there are so many gaps in this water buyback system and there's so many undeclared conflicts of interest that it's wide open to corruption. But this fits into other areas of perceived corruption from the LNP. There's the Hello World incident. There's Paracelia. There's Paladin. There's other Joyce corruption with the Inland Rail. There's the gas fields. There's the Great Barrier Reef Foundation funding of $444 million. So there's a lot of allegations of corruption and I think the the water buyback is possibly going to be the final straw for a lot of people certainly in Queensland and New South Wales.
1: I think there is an understanding that sometimes ministers get put into portfolios that they're not suited to but that they're supported by an excellent public service. I know that years back and could still be the, the case today the Department of Agriculture voted solidly Labour because they'd rather work with someone who grew up in, say, Woolamaloo and knew nothing about farm, but could be taught, rather than some National Party hack who was actually a failed farmer but thought he knew everything about farming and would create headaches for the Department of Agriculture. It, yes, it's not so much that ministers are out of their depth. We don't like it when it happens, but we do understand that that's a problem of the Westminster system. But it's when corruption comes in that's what we don't like and i suspect there may be some kind of electoral reckoning from this but what that is whether it's a major drop or loss of seats and if an integrity commission comes in i think there's going to be a lot of sleepless nights in certain members on both sides certain members houses
0: You're listening to New Politics, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we inspect the performance of the media in their coverage of the election campaign. Winning election campaigns are based on how well political parties engage the media, and there's a number of different techniques used to attract voters. There's a whole range of social media now being used, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and overseas platforms such as WeChat and Weibo, are being used to engage Mandarin-speaking communities in different electorates. Despite this, most political information is still disseminated through journalists from the mainstream media, and that's television, radio and print, And they're usually embedded within the respective campaign teams hoping to gain enough information to produce the content they need to reach their hourly deadlines but most of the media reporting so far has been looking at slip-ups journalists trying to be the star reporter that captures the gotcha moment and they're more interested in providing a dream run for the prime minister through uncritical media questioning and the broadcasting of positive images I've actually lost track of how many pubs Scott Morrison has visited during the campaign, and I'm actually beginning to wonder if he may have a drinking problem. So far, the Prime Minister has evaded much scrutiny, he's evaded much of the truth, and continuously deflected away from the performance of the Liberal National Government over the past three years, and instead, much scrutiny has been placed on the opposition leader, Bill Shorten. An aspiring Prime Minister does need to have the blowtorch applied to them if they want to be Prime Minister. But have we seen too much heat put onto Bill Shorten and not enough onto Scott Morrison?
1: Scott Morrison is a very strange candidate for Prime Minister. He has a lot of questions over his own nobody quite knows why Malcolm Turnbull was was rolled. I mean we all know why he was rolled, it's because that he annoyed a sufficient numbers of little party donors prepared to support the party anymore, even though, of course, Malcolm was one of the biggest donors. Morrison's own winning of his seat of cook was shrouded in mystery. He had lost quite badly the initial pre and his opponent, Michael Tauch, was basically run through the Murdoch paper's worst tendencies for character assassination. Scott Morrison never looks comfortable He never looks like he's in control of the situation. There was the clip that went around social media of him drinking beer in Young Liberals. And they start chanting, he's no Bob Hawke. Now, Tony Abbott, of course, got derision for sculling a beer. A lot of people felt that it wasn't very prime ministerial. Scott Morrison takes a mouthful that looks like someone who doesn't like the taste of beer. Australians aren't interested in the big drinker anymore. They just want somebody competent and in control of the situation to be Prime Minister.
0: Well, that's one reason why I do find the whole campaign imagery of Scott Morrison to be quite bemusing, that he's shown walking into a pub, he, he's shown drinking beer with a mate, he's shown drinking beer in a crowded hall with other beer drinkers who seem to be a little bit drunk as well. He's shown shearing a sheep. He's shown lawn bowling. He's shown hitting a cricket ball. He's seen kicking a football. One thing that I've noticed amongst many journalists that are out there reporting the the campaign is that this, they all say that the election campaign is actually quite boring. And I'm wondering why that is because there's so many things that they should be looking for. And I think that instead of following Scott Morrison and recording him shearing a sheep, they should be asking him decent questions about what his actual policies are the electorate doesn't really care if a prime minister can shear a sheep or not or whether they can drink beer or whether they can hit a cricket ball or kick a football they don't really care about that as you suggested before what they are really interested in is the policies that they've got out there and how well that they can introduce those policies and implement those policies and how competent they are
1: paul keating less electorally successful as prime minister but still won the prime ministry not a big sports fan I don't think, again, not a big drinker, or at least not a big public drinker. Not tastes that aren't in alignment with what is perceived to be mainstream Australia. John Howard loves sport, a genuine love of particularly cricket, but used that as a a, side issue rather than the major uh, focus of of his, his electoral appeal. I don't know that anyone says, oh, this person is just like me so I'm going
0: to vote for them without some kind of policy that they can also vote for. The two major parties have had their respective campaign buses where journalists pile onto the bus and they're driven out to a secret location that they don't know about until they actually get there. And to me, it's a little bit like the embedded journalists that we had during the first Iraq war where If your life depends on the military that are protecting you, well, you're not going to ask the serious questions. You're not going to ask the difficult questions that might get you into trouble with the person that you're interviewing. I I think the same thing happens with journalists being on the bus with either the Prime Minister or the Leader of the Opposition. If you ask too many tough questions, well, you're going to be booted off the bus. If you ask too many difficult questions about policy matters, you're probably not going to be invited to the Prime Minister's special screening of the Game of Thrones. And I think that's led to Scott Morrison not being asked the serious questions. Scott Morrison being able to just talk about being in the bubble or deflect issues. If he doesn't like the question that's being asked, he just simply deflects it and talks about that being of the Canberra bubble or not of interest to the electorate. The media has claimed that Scott Morrison is a more wily campaigner than Malcolm Turnbull. But to me, this is code for just being loose with the truth. Scott Morrison doesn't come across as a
1: great intellectual. <laughs> that he's wily, maybe in the wily coyote sense, in that you know, every time he tries to set up a bomb for the opposition, he walks into it himself and you know ends up falling down the cliff again. I think they make too much of little things. So Bill Shorten doesn't quite have complex figures of superannuation at his fingertips and this is seen as a terrible blunder, whereas Scott Morrison can not say very much at all and this is seen as great campaigning. Something has changed. Four weeks ago, even the Liberal Party seemed to think that they were gone for all money. Now there's a, there's a sense in which they think that they're going to win. As I said earlier, I think that there is a fairly good chance that they are going to. But I'm not quite sure what changed, except Bill Shorten couldn't answer a fairly complex question off the top. Also, Bill, whenever asked a complex policy question, will often hand on to the shadow minister responsible. I still struggle to see what's wrong with that. Why bumble through it yourself when you can give it to the person who
0: has been on top of it and probably wrote the opposition report on it? Well, I guess whether it's a good thing or or not a good thing, the media will always pick that up. It's an issue of competence. If someone who's aspiring to be a prime minister, if they can't answer a question off the cuff or a difficult question that they, they didn't see coming, that's seen as a level of competence. And generally, that's the way that it's put out there. that's why they've always been looking for the gotcha moment with Bill Shorten. Not so much with Scott Morrison, but definitely with Bill Shorten. And as I did mention, if someone is wanting to be the Prime Minister, well, they need to be carefully scrutinised by the media but it gets back to the question that I put before have we seen too much heat put on Bill Shorten and not enough on Scott Morrison because I've lost count of how many journalists start off their propositions or their questions whether it's directly to Bill Shorten or whether it's to a panel a political panel or a question to voters they ask why is Bill Shorten so unpopular quite often asked this question without realising that Scott Morrison is also unpopular. He's actually in negative net approval rating. That means that their disapproval rating is higher than their approval rating. Bill Shorten, now there's no dispute about this. He does have a higher disapproval rating. His disapproval rating is 51%, but Scott Morrison has got a disapproval rating of 45%. Sure, Shorten's is higher, but we never hear the question, why is Scott Morrison so unpopular? Now the media was also making a big point about the amount of debates that should be held during the election campaign. In American politics there's debates left, right and centre but they do have a, a National Press Council over there that moderates the, the debate so there's definitely a, a minimum amount of debates that happen in US presidential campaigns In Australia there's no such setup here, so there's an expectation that there are three debates during the election campaign, but there's no rule about that. There's no regulatory body that looks at how many there should be and where they should be placed. So they were making a big point about there should be more debates during this campaign. But there's already been one that was held by Channel 7 and the West Australian newspaper in Perth. Bill Shorten won that first debate quite easily. It was 25 to 12 and there were 11 people undecided in an audience of 48. The media has also been saying, well those 48 people, they were hand picked and it's just a small sample. Well yes, they were hand picked, but they were they were hand picked by a research company that specifically looked for people that were not affiliated to any political party, they were completely neutral. And Bill Shorten won that first debate, 25 to 12. I dislike the notion of debates.
1: Michael Daly won the debate against Gladys Berejiklian. Didn't do him any good at all. Now, other factors came out after, but it didn't affect him whatsoever. It seems to me in most debates over the last few years, when they've been held, Shorten's won them. He didn't win the last election. Maybe he should have, but he didn't. I... I think it's this American notion about playing to television, getting it on television and it looks good, And but then nobody watches it. I bet the ratings see it as coming somewhere under whatever it was up against last night. And of course, nobody's watching broadcast television much anymore anyway, or at least the, the audience that they're trying to get, which are younger people, don't watch broadcast television very much at all. Having one debate, having six debates, having 20 debates, having three debates doesn't mean anything, particularly in an electorate where almost three in four people have already decided.
0: Well, I guess it also gets back to the level of trust that people do have in the political system and the political processes. So if they've got a low interest in politics and they've got a low trust level in politics, they're they're unlikely to watch a political debate. But the other factor is that In 2004, Mark Latham was seen to have won all of the debates against John Howard. 2001, Kim Beasley was seen to have won all the debates against John Howard again. But in all of those cases, they didn't end up winning the election. So maybe it's not as important as the media would like to think it is.
1: I don't think it is. And I must say that the two best political public speakers I've ever seen were Bob Carr and John Howard. I didn't agree with either necessarily, but... John Howard was a very superb public speaker. I'm not a fan, but as someone who does a bit of public speaking, I could very much appreciate his craft of speaking. I don't think the debates mean very much at all. And if Scott Morrison was to say, no, these are a waste of time and I'm not
0: doing any more, I wouldn't blame him in the slightest. So we're coming up to the end of week three of the election campaign. There's just two more weeks to follow after this. I disagree completely with the media. I think that this has been quite an exciting campaign. And I just wish that they found some more enthusiasm for it as well. But only two more weeks to go. May the 18th is rapidly appearing in the horizon. And we'll get to find out what's happening in a few weeks' time. It will not be dull. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au, and tell other people about our podcast. Even if you don't like it, tell your friends and see if they agree with you. It's all about the conversation. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to all, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. See you next time.